Before every episode this season, we are providing specific calls to action to encourage our listeners to fight against police brutality and systemic racism. This week, we want to discuss the tenure tax abatement in Philadelphia, an often overlooked but vitally significant way revenue is denied to the city in favor of putting that money back into the pockets of rich property developers. The tenure tax abatement means that property owners do not have to pay property taxes for 10 years after they purchase new or existing buildings. This incentivizes developers to buy property in low-income neighborhoods and construct luxury homes there. As a result, working-class people get priced out of their neighborhoods by wealthy developers who are gentrifying neighborhoods under the guise of revitalization. This robs the city of Philadelphia of necessary public funds that they should be earning in tax revenue from those developers. The 10-year property tax abatement in Philadelphia is an often overlooked tool that has been used for years to disenfranchise black and working-class neighborhoods, direct much-needed funds away from public schools, and line the already full pockets of property developers. This abatement applies to both single-family homes and center city skyscrapers. Comcast, who reported a revenue of nearly $109 billion in 2019, currently does not pay property taxes on its headquarters in Philly, the tallest building in the city. In the description of this episode, we've linked to a breakdown from Philly Power Research about the 10-year tax abatement and how Center City Development profits at the expense of Philly Public Schools. We've also linked to a breakdown from Reclaim Philadelphia about how ending the 10-year abatement, along with other bold progressive policy changes, can drastically mitigate the lasting effects of COVID-19 and improve the lives of working-class Philadelphians. Councilwoman Kendra Brooks proposed a bill in June that would eliminate the subsidy entirely, an act that would be invaluable to the city and especially the public school system. With the bill currently in limbo, it is important to contact city council members and Mayor Kenny now and tell them to pass the bill ending the tax abatement. Hello, it is me, Rachel. <laughs> oh, it was your recording. And, what? I didn't realize it was actually recording. Oh no, that's going to be the intro now. Hello, it is me. <laughs> and it is I, Lauren. And we are here together in studio, together, together in studio, together. In the studio, together. Together in the studio. Hi, I'm Rachel. And I'm Lauren. We play together in the band Coping Skills. We actually put out new music. We are still the band Coping Skills. Wow, wouldn't you believe it? I don't. Do I? I believe it. I wouldn't have believed it if if I if we weren't the ones who did it. I can't <laughs> believe it is Coping Skills. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we are actually the still the band Coping Skills in addition to making this podcast. This, this is, is More Talk, talk Less Rock. rock. Lauren and I first met Marissa DeBeese in 2015 when we recorded a song by her band Mannequin Pussy as part of our college senior project. She instantly made herself known as a force to be reckoned with. A year later, I started tour managing Mannequin Pussy on their release tour for their second album, Romantic, and I've been really lucky to spend so much time getting to know Marissa on the road. I've learned a lot just by watching her lead by example. Marissa both exudes and breeds confidence through the way that she carries herself in the world, head held high, driven to accomplish all of her goals, 
She encourages others to do the same. This mentality permeates every endeavor Marissa pursues. She has a wealth of aspirations on top of playing music, including directing, screenwriting, and activism. She strikes an impressive balance of personal and political, using her platform not only for her band Man Can Pussy, but to advocate against injustice in many forms. Thank you so much, Marissa, for coming and joining us today. Would you tell us about your first experiences playing music? I can, yeah. Uh, my first experiences playing music, I think, was more, like, romanticized. In I was, like, 16. I got an electric guitar for my birthday. Didn't get lessons. And there, like, wasn't YouTube. So it wasn't really, like, teaching myself, really. It, like, it was a little bit harder to teach myself. But I started a band with, like, my two friends in high school. And we were called Simon and the Mofos. And we made flyers and put them up all around the school that, like, said Simon and the Mofos are coming. And I think we were more into, like, the street team aspect of it more right. so than the playing. Like, the idea of being in a band yeah. versus… Yeah. We did have some practices, but um, me and one of the other girls had a, a really big, like, high school falling out. So, it, it ended the band and… Um, you know, I think derailed my my musical aspirations for another almost eight years. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like I would not play a guitar again until I was like 23. Because of the falling out? Uh, I think that's, that's hard to say. I don't know if it was like directly because of it. There were a lot of things I think that were happening at, at the same time mm-hmm. that kind of put me off of that, that path. But I remember being that specific age. I don't know. I think it was maybe 15, not 16, but really wanting to do this thing, like assembling my friends, like getting us to do it. And then just it not, it not happening and not going anywhere. So you started up again. You said you were 23. You started up again. Did you have a band at that point or was that you just like picking up a guitar again and, and kind of getting back into it? Yeah, that was me picking back up a, a guitar. I had had like a few, eventually that time frame when I was like 15, I asked my parents, I was like, I'd really like to take guitar lessons. I really want to learn. And they're like, well, you know, you should learn like piano. And we had a neighbor who taught piano and guitar. And so they told me if I took piano, I could also have some guitar lessons. So I took a few, like less than a handful of lessons from him. So I, I learned like the very basics of, you know, a C, a G, a D how to make a bar chord and that's probably it but I never like once you learn those things you don't forget them yeah and that gives you like a huge platform to start experimenting with yeah exactly so then like that knowledge I learned when I was 16 or 15 then all of a sudden when I was 23 and uh going through major life changes and had this room to play the guitar and like open myself up to doing this new creative thing. I already had that, that place to like pull from and then just started kind of like writing on my own and eventually um, hit up my friend, Thanasi, who was the only other person I knew who played an instrument and was always in bands, but I knew that he currently was not in one. So I was like, oh, do you want to just make some music together? And he said, yeah. And thus Mannequin Pussy was born? Yeah, and then Mannequin Pussy was born. And now it's like nine years later or something. Nine years you don't have to say it. it like that. <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm just like, I'm just like, think, just thinking about like the passage of time and how like that doesn't actually seem like a long time, but it's kind of a long time. 
to be doing like the same thing and playing in the same band and Oh yeah, that, I think that's been like heavy on my mind through this pandemic. Really? <laughs> yeah, definitely. In what ways? I'm like, where did the nine years go? Like, what the fuck have I been doing? I mean, you've been doing a lot. Yes. <laughs> I've been doing I don't, a lot. I don't know that I would say it like, what have I been doing? Like, <laughs> you've well, been I doing d- a lot of cool shit. <laughs> I think you end up saying that, especially when like your entire industry collapses. And then like this thing that you have been working on for nine years is no longer right. a job. Really? Yeah, it doesn't look the same way. Yeah, it doesn't look or feel the same currently. So I think now I have that perspective of the fuck have I been doing? Because now this thing I've been doing, it exists obviously still, but it has fundamentally changed and I'm trying to figure out what happens next. Have you come up with any thoughts of what what happens next? Rachel and I have talked a little bit about that where I've been like spiraling off. On, oh, you too, yes. My, uh, <laughs> <laughs> like what comes next I think I've been re- I've been really into researching um going to law school becoming a homesteader uh trying to get a job with like city council I, I think I think music will be part of my life and I really will make music for my entire life but really the only way that it is a sustainable career is through touring and if that thing doesn't exist then my life by necessity has to change and that's something I've just been trying to understand. And I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm comfortable with, with change because I know that the music as itself, like that form of creativity will always exist. Just the way that you get to experience it and other people get to experience it is changing. How have you been handling, like, you and I kind of have a similar experience where we were both, you as a musician and me as a tour manager, merch person sustaining ourselves solely on either playing music or touring and then the pandemic happened and so like how have you been reconciling that especially when you look at it in terms of I've been working at this for nine years and I just had it and now it's been taken from me I can't tell if I've been handling handling it really well or really badly <laughs> I, I, I really like, I feel like oftentimes those two look very similar yeah <laughs> I, I think because like maybe like what like the breakdowns I've had in the past were like much more cinematic looking maybe you sure. know it's like crying on the floor of your shower mm-hmm. unable to get out of bed mm-hmm. like that's to me is like the place I'm coming from from like that's what my breakdown looks like right but now I'm still getting up out of bed. I'm trying to continue. I don't know. I don't I don't know how I'm handling it. Yeah. It's, it, I mean, it, it just sucks. Like, there's no eloquent way to put it. Like, mm-hmm. I, I really miss it. But I also feel very privileged that I got to experience what it is like to have this life where you are so fully, you know, self-employed. Like your own ability to take care of yourself and the people around you comes from your own ingenuity. Yeah. And that feels that, I mean, that felt incredible. It was, it's very satisfying. Um, and now, <laughs> now I, I don't, I don't the know. Biggest <laughs> yeah, I don't know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I, I relate to that where you're, you can't decide if you have just 
pushed it so far back into the recesses where you're not processing at all, or if you have just like grown and adapted as a person and are handling it better through your life experiences of, well, I'm grateful that I had it. I will figure out something else. My life will continue on. I'm going to keep making music, etc. Yes. It's tough. Well put. <laughs> I, I think I think that's that's right. I mean, that's also why I'm very grateful that this didn't happen when I was much younger. For sure. Because I think I would be on the, you know, the floor of my bathroom, like sobbing, unable to cope with this change. But I've seen my life and the people of, you know, the people around me who I love, their lives change so dramatically uh, of just based on other experiences that just happen in a person's life that I think kind of primed me for this huge global change of just accepting that things like this do happen that just put you on a completely new path that you didn't you didn't expect it would happen at all yeah it's something that everybody is finding their own ways to deal with because as we are experiencing it as an entire fractured global community everybody has their own individual experience of it too to deal with which makes it all the more complicated all the time um going back to a few years prior to this you know when the first tour that i tour managed you guys on back then you were playing drunk to impatience and those songs didn't come out for three more years so I was wondering how your relationship changed to those songs from when you were playing it all the way back then through two processes of recording it to releasing. I think it's kind of remarkable to hold on to something so long that you have been working on creatively and that you really believe in creatively. And I'm, I was really proud of the way that we all went through this recording process to some extent where they're knowing or, or that feeling that like it's not right as it currently is and not just saying like oh whatever fuck it it'll it'll be fine it'll be fine like I'm sure it's fine I'm sure I'm just like overthinking it and trusting my own artistic intuition I think that was a really big learning process too so I've often in my life ignored that intuitive feeling of like mm, this needs more work this isn't done yet and I, I I know that there is that artist thing where how can anything ever be done sure could you not always <laughs> be forever tweaking it but I think that there's a, a difference between knowing that something isn't right it's not in the form it's supposed to be and just the obsessiveness of wanting it to be perfect mm-hmm. um, but I mean, it, it was uh, it was very satisfying to see that these songs that have been so close to me for so long seems that they became very close to other people too who experienced them. Definitely. And that moment, like going on this on that first tour that we did together, we were playing the song every night that no one had ever heard that we were still figuring out as a band, and that's why we were playing it. To three years later, where people are shouting those lyrics that you've written years ago back into your face is like whoa we've 
we created this feeling together that now all these people get to experience. Totally. It's very wild. How has your relationship to those feelings changed? Like from when you were first figuring it out to the point where people are singing your experiences back to you, but in the context of their own, like, is that jarring in any way? Because you are not, I assume, in the place you were anymore when you had those feelings? It's, I think it's easier to sing something like that now and be so far removed emotionally from that place. Sure. Because for a while, I, I always thought of like songs as like their own raw like triggers where if you're singing these things and your experiences are what's happening in the song, singing it is reliving it. And especially when you, I think as an artist, you do have like a responsibility to be very honest about the emotions that you put forth on stage and that you put forth into song. So a lot of these things, they're not someone else's stories. They're my stories. Um, and I actually am relieved because I don't think that I had gone through the proper healing places three years ago for a lot of these songs that I had written about that if we had made these songs and then put them out and then we immediately were like on tour again, I think I would still be unlearning a lot of the kind of destructive tendencies that I had at that time and unlearning a lot of that, that pain and hurt while being on tour instead of getting Mm -hmm. to go through that privately harder and then right. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I could just feel like a, a more solid person getting to share these songs with people again, which made it more of like a, like a a feeling of a victory than like a re-traumatization. Yeah. You get to enjoy it from like a little bit of distance. Cause I could see how, like if, if you had a whole crowd of people like shouting these lyrics back to you and they were still feeling really raw, then, then that could be a, a, a very different experience than, than, you know, where you are now. Um, yeah, crying on the floor of, my, <laughs> of whatever like shitty motel we're staying in. Or yeah. <laughs> but no, <laughs> luckily not. Not that time. Um, how was the the press cycle that you were doing for this record for patients um, different than for the records you put out in the past? Um, do you ever like do you ever get tired of like answering the the same questions over and over again? I've I've kind of feel that a lot of um music journalists have stepped up their game to some extent. That's good to hear. Not 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 everyone. I mean you're all, you're always going to get you know the the like kind of stock questions that come along with things but um that that process of having to answer for what I've done you know it was much um easier and it felt like a lot more thoughtful with a lot of the the conversations I got to have with people through that process and I guess definitely what was different was that there there was a, a press cycle for this record or something yeah, you know, yeah like, I guess like it's not just like putting out a record and hoping people care yeah <laughs> it was that, you know, it was a, a process. It was something that people like were helping us to do. And it was definitely exciting 
because for the first time, at least like in, in my music career, I was talking to people who seemed um, legitimately like excited to talk about, about what we had made together. And that felt really good. And I think you can tell when a music journalist is like actually excited to discuss the work versus they've been given an assignment and they just have to get through it. Mm-hmm. So, okay. um, and I think we're obviously a small enough band that a lot of these uh, interviews I do are probably just being pitched from the the writer themselves. They're like, I want to write about this. Oh, I see. You know, like we're not on that level where I think like anyone is being forced to write about right. us. Like, right. It's someone, someone's making a choice. It comes from a personal investment on behalf of the author. Yeah. Cool. And that also helps to lead to uh, better conversations. Totally. Yeah. Uh, do you think that that also has to do with just like the more years you're playing music, the more people kind of like get accustomed to you being around and like, uh, you know, more familiar with what you do and, and kind of want to dig deeper into that? Um, or do you think it, it was more that versus like uh, a reflection of that record patience being different than what you've done in the past or maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. I think it was a little bit of both. I think that's, that's the goal in terms of like building a body of work means that you do have more for someone to assess what it is you are trying to do through that work. Um, and what you are saying through that, that work. Um, so having, having more, and especially like, I think with albums, it's so clear the way that an artist is, either growing or kind of continuing to do the same thing. Um, It's a, it's interesting. I think that that's what's so interesting about art is that you can like physically experience everything that an artist creates. I I love that with like painters and stuff. Like when you like look at their early work and then you like are like if you go through like a retrospective in a museum and you're like wow this is the shit they were doing in like the 1700s and you know i mean they probably didn't live very long but you're like <laughs> you know 40 years old yeah, yeah you're like yeah, oh yeah. my god wow it, it uh, that also is inspiring too because i think we live in this time where people are like you have to be genius now and you got to do it on your first try right because yeah. i like if you don't then you know you're nothing yeah, then <laughs> yeah. you you don't get a second chance people you know, move on. Yeah, there's no attention span anymore. Yeah. Uh, but you have to work, you like work through that. And obviously, I mean, I would be like remiss to say that Epitaph didn't have some sort of, like a big pull in that too, that they are the, you know, kind of like legendary punk label that they are taking on these, these being me and my bandmates, like these young unknown kids who are actually adults <laughs> and uh, and allowing us and giving us the resources to explore our own like artistic aspirations and identities so obviously that's a huge change and gives I think you some um what's the word I want not weight but legitimacy maybe? for sure yeah and I think you know epitaph's involvement is kind of related to what you were saying about the journalists who have written about you in this period is Epitaph wanted to have you. They pursued you. They cared about Mannequin Pussy being on their label. And that is evident, I think, 
in the way that they've supported you since signing versus a label or a band that's still on a label because they are that band. There's like a a level of personal attention that doesn't always exist at this level. Yeah. We're very lucky. Very, very lucky to have them and to have that kind of artistic like liberty too where they're like yeah whatever it is that you want to make we'll just support whatever that is it's a beautiful thing yeah Yeah. that's what you imagine it's supposed to be but you hear very often that it is not that at all it seems like it would be way easier to just like sign a band that is already doing something that you like instead of signing a band and then trying to force them into something that they are not yeah that they like they weren't doing yeah like it seems like the former would just would just be a, a way easier way to go about doing things, but that's not often what happens. Like I don't know what the like what the gain is of like signing a an artist or a band and then not really caring about what they do or trying to like be pigeonhole them into into something that they don't want to be. It's um, capitalism. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's pure, unadulterated capitalism. Yeah. Well, today is that we're recording this is September 13th. And I don't know if you realized, but this have significance. It's six months since we had to drive from Philadelphia to Detroit or from Chicago to Detroit to Philly when the Best Coast tour was cut short. March 13th. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, because I remember my sister was like, I think that they're closing down the highways. Yeah. <laughs> we were like, what? gotta go. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was Which a- turned out to be a lie. Yeah. She was just That worried. wasn't her fault. That no. was her roommate's fault who was spreading misinformation. Uh, that, that doesn't happen in this country. Um, um, but, but I think regardless, even if we hadn't got that information, we were like. Well, the tour was canceled. Like we were just, we, we got to Detroit. Wow, Show and tour were canceled. Six months. Six full months. Well, three days before that, you played a show in Evanston, and I recorded the speech that you gave before you guys play Fuka. Can we play it for you? Oh, no. I don't know. <laughs> Should, do, do Is I, that okay with you? Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> okay. That's all right. It's not bad. <laughs> I wasn't there. This part really, like, <laughs> sets the scene for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for your attention tonight. We're really here, pussy. From Philadelphia. Oh, hi. Hi, everyone over here. Can I say hi? Everyone has something that they struggle with. 
And so when we scream, we're not just screaming to release what's been locked up inside of us. We're screaming for the people that we love who are in pain. And we're screaming for the strangers that we don't know. Because there's nowhere acceptable to scream. I can't go outside on the street and just fucking scream it all out. So we made a place where it was acceptable. This place right here. How does it feel hearing that now? It's weird to make yourself emotional. I think that also comes from being somewhat removed from it now. Yeah. I, it's it kind of, it's, it's interesting to hear that. Not, not, I can't say it was pre-pandemic because it was like the start of the pandemic. Yeah. Like the things were starting to shut down. I think we had already had some canceled shows at that point. Yeah. And we had already had the experience of like crossing the, we had shows, what, Portland to Vancouver to Seattle and coming back from Vancouver on our way to Seattle. Remember right over the border, we stopped at like a Rite Aid and there was no hand sanitizer. That's right. We were trying to get them. It was like, there were little bits of it, but it hadn't really like, there were no shutdowns here yet. Yeah. So it was like, this was right before everything really just like the bottom fell out. I really, I do miss that place. I miss that place of, there's just been so many times in the last six months where not just on a personal level, just everything that I read, everything that I interact with, every direction of what is going on inside the, you know, territory of the United States, of the world. I just want to scream all the time. Like, there's no other, like, for a lot of times, like, that's, like, my first instinct. And I have to, like, beat back that instinct of, no, you live in a row home. <laughs> like you you can't do that you need to find another way to channel what it is that you feel mm-hmm. and that's what music and performance has been for so long is like just channeling those emotions and having a place where you really are safe to express rage but have it also be not like not like roid rage but I think a rage that keeps us all kind of functioning in a way where you do need to get things down because I think most people are bottlers. Most people just take every experience that they have and everything that's going on and they just shove it down and pretend it doesn't exist. And when you do that, like you will erupt. Yeah. There's, There's no, only so much that can fit. Yeah. There's no in a chance. bottle. Yeah. Yeah. And so for for you, creating this space to scream was about catharsis, about like exorcism of everything that gets bottled. And you haven't been able to find a, like a substitute for the last six months. Is that kind of what you're saying? Maybe. Yeah. I, I think that's a, is like the question I've been asking myself is, well, how else should I deal with things? <laughs> if I can't <laughs> yeah, yeah if I if I can't do this if I can't get this kind of like communal 
experiences that like a show is a, a communal experience um then how else do i process these things like what what's the other way um and i won't say that i have found something that does make me feel as like kind of light and centered as like the experience of playing a show but um i certainly need to find something i can't like smoke weed and play video games and think all my problems are gonna go away (laughs) (laughs) you do that a little bit maybe yeah Yeah. a little bit it's a nice it's like a nice thing to do for yourself every now and then or like watch like 15 hours of true yeah (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's not those activities don't provide the same kind of like way to harness and release your energy that screaming does. That was something that we did for a while on the headline tour was mm-hmm. we had the group scream. That felt so good. Yeah. I think it was healthy for a lot of people. Yeah. Because you gave them that space. I basically like I didn't force anyone to scream. Right. I was just like, hey, you guys just want to scream? Like, I promise you it's going to feel really good. Yeah. And then we would have like a one, two, three. and then an entire room of people would scream together and it felt really cool. That's going to sound wild. Like, I'll that's, play it for you later. Yeah, that's like, not, oh, you have some some group screams? Yeah. I would say that's not, that's but not those really speeches were like five minutes. So. Yeah, those speeches were long. That's yeah. how we got to an hour long set. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> little speeches. Just, <laughs> I don't know, I, Rachel, I, can you relate to that? I, I remember, um, <laughs> experiencing those speeches and thinking about all of the times you've given a shit for how much we talk during our <laughs> sets and being like, I know this is different, but is it different? Yeah, I feel like maybe there is a difference between like you being like, yeah, let's all come together and like and, and like do this thing and like it'll be really cathartic and great for everyone and us just like telling jokes. So like remember this thing that we did earlier and you're just like <laughs> Yeah, I'm definitely coming from the um more rock, less talk yes. school yes. of thought. Yes. Right. You make you make the less and you talk are the people in my wife who are. Yeah. Yeah. But you make the less talk count. Well that's you know? actually uh I don't know if I've told you this directly, but that's part of how the podcast got its name. Oh, really? Yeah. So we had played a show uh, at a college <laughs> that I recorded I co- recorded and uploaded to YouTube and like figured out how much of the time we spent bantering versus how much of the time we spent playing music. I forgot what the other activity was. <laughs> uh, and I posted about it and you DM'd me. And we're like, more rock, less talk. <laughs> and then later that day or the next day, or maybe the day before, I don't remember, uh, I went to a show and I saw uh, Keith Verbilla. Or is it Verbia? I actually never thought about it. It's probably Verbilla. I don't fucking know. Um, Keith, if you're listening, how do you pronounce your last name? Uh, Keith Harmony Woods. Yeah, Keith Harmony Woods. And he and I were talking about the video and he said to me, yeah, more talk, less rock. And just like bringing those two together, I was like, yes, this is the experience of the podcast we need to create. And this was like before we had really sat down and officially started working on it. So the seeds. Yeah, the yeah. seeds were planted. I feel like that is does kind of um, fall in line with 
a lot of the music we have made where it's like, okay, we have a concept for this record. We have a cover we want to do. We want to like, we don't have any music yet, but like we know exactly <laughs> like what we, we, we have, we have a package. We just have to fill it with something. Similar to Simon and the Mofos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. I understand. We're from that school of thought. Yeah. I mean, we, so when we first started playing mannequin pussy shows, our sets were like 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But all of the songs were like leaning more aggressive then. Like there were there yeah, weren't yeah. any drunk twos no, in, right. the, in the early days. And also if you only have like, you know, eight songs or whatever that you've even put out, uh it's like, well, well, that's all we got. <laughs> yeah. Here it is. We yeah. were playing music for a long time before we put anything out too. We were just like a it really it felt more like a not experimental because I think rock music is so you know, I feel like I'm like living in the fucking stone ages being in a rock band a lot of the time. That's something I've definitely thought about a lot during and like the pandemic. rock music is inherently not experimental because it feels so traditional. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but it, it just felt like this like experimental like release kind of thing. Or like, a, like a performance piece with guitars that slowly like morphed into like actual songs. Gotcha. Right. <laughs> But I would never say anything to the audience. I wouldn't even say our name. And eventually it was Bear who was like, you need to just say that we're mannequin pussy. <laughs> He's like, you have to say something. <laughs> and so if anyone is at fault for my like newly found um, five minute long speeches <laughs> on how everyone should access their inner creativity and believe in themselves and, you know be the change kind of thing it's Bear's fault because he told me to talk more I think fault is the wrong kind of word yeah Uh, and I can't think of the substitute synonym but I his contribution yeah there was something really powerful in in that speech like I heard many variations of it over the course of five weeks plus another three weeks and it always hit somewhere that felt good to be hit and so there's value in taking five minutes to address the collective group and be like I see you I see that you have pain going on we all have pain going on everybody's experiencing things let's acknowledge that together and also release it together and let the room feel lighter for a few seconds like yeah there was there's value in that and um I think your fans would agree. You know? I have to imagine that the people who are in that room probably have a similar like psychological state to me mm-hmm. because they've connected to these songs. So I think about like, oh, well, what would, how would I want to experience something? Like, what would I want to hear? Especially if I was a young person. I think I came from the more Rockwest talk thing because I really, I am kind of a misandrist when it comes to men and I'm realizing that a little bit like not completely like certain men definitely make me I don't think you have to qualify that in this room (laughs) yeah (laughs) this is a safe space for that this is a safe space for uh, Um, a touch of misandry yeah 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 yeah. just Just a touch of misandry is that I I came from that world where like everyone around me was just like dudes playing music and then there would they would always talk and they would just talk about nothing or they would talk about like something that happened to them that like wasn't like 
really that interesting or it didn't inform the set in a productive way yeah it just it just it felt like and I, I'm critiquing that experience of like being a young person at these shows like it felt like a time waster where I was there to feel like music vibrating in my body and like have this release and then I would see this like self-absorbed front man yeah like just I don't know saying nothing and that always it just like rubbed me the wrong way yeah. where I was like this is a collective experience that we're having and if you're not speaking to that then why right. speak at all or if you're speaking to it in a way that like even worsens the atmosphere. Yeah, I think that that's, yeah. The air shifts sometimes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have been such a force, I guess, since you were a child. I remember you telling a story about writing to the mayor in elementary school. Yes. About playground equipment, I think. No. No. <laughs> Not playground equipment. Would you tell the story? I will. Thank you. I can't believe you remembered this. Um... When I was in third grade, Thanasi was also in this third grade class with me. Of course. Because so you've known him since like you were uh, five. Five, yeah. Yeah. Or six or so, whatever. Um, so there was this park next to the playground in the town I grew up. And, or, sorry, there's this park next to the library in the town I grew up. And my mom would take me there after we would check out books and we would read books in the park. And it's like kind of close to the water. It's just like a really nice cute like little park not that big just you know more so of like a patch of grass with trees um but like a lot of people would go there with their kids and would have fun and whatever my mom one day um she worked for like the local newspaper she was like marissa i have some bad news what is it she's like they're gonna bulldoze the park and i was like why why would they do that She's like, well, you know, the town is growing and they want to make more parking. It wasn't no. condos. They just wanted parking spaces. Oh. Ah, that's worse. So not, yeah, like not even. <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, that is like, yeah, it's like, it's like, this is going one of two ways. This is going to go parking lot or this could go like luxury condos. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this is. They pave paradise and put up a parking literally, lot. Yeah, yeah, this yeah, is literally. very much that. <laughs> this is them paving my little paradise to create more incentives for people to shop. And I didn't see it like that when I was in third grade, but that's really what was going on. So I, you know, didn't have the coping mechanisms back then. So I just burst into tears. I'm very upset. I'm like, why would they do this? Like, this doesn't make any sense to me. The park is nice. Why would you want a parking spot that just it didn't compute in my mind? And my mom, again, who worked for the local paper, was like, if you're so upset about it, why don't you write a letter to the editor? And I was like, I will. (laughs) So I wrote a letter. I don't know where this letter exists or like whatever. But what, as it was explained to me, whatever I did in the letter was I invited the mayor to come to my third grade class and make a presentation as to why they would do this. Um, And I guess my mom pulled some strings because they published my letter in the letters to the editor section of our newspaper. And the mayor came to my third grade class <laughs> with a group of architects who were supposed to uh, be in charge of tearing down the parking lot. And that was definitely the moment where I realized that um, 
the life of an activist is often very lonely because <laughs> you will scream about these things that you cannot understand why they were happening. And you're looking around like, right, guys? Right? This makes no sense, right? And so that was me in my third grade class. And no one else in the class could give a fucking shit. <laughs> I was about like, this whole about this whole presentation that was like going on. Um, like no one asked any questions. No one was like, yeah, I don't think, no, I, no, I agree with her. Definitely the park should stay. So I, um, they, the mayor came, which is insane. Like, you know, when you live in a town of 15,000 people or however many people are in my town, like, right. Right. I guess that's something that the, mayor can make time for yeah i don't know what i don't know i don't I know wonder how to, if it was written about later like as a press thing uh, yeah. I, yeah that seems like a good op of like you know mayor goes to you know third, to the grade, third grade class, class to you know, address this letter talking to the, to the people you know yeah like, talking to the young citizens and they come to an agreement yeah and you know young citizen realizes yes a parking lot is good um, over a park. <laughs> over yeah. a park. Um, so anyway, after they did their presentation and they're like, any questions? I was like, <laughs> like hand right up. But I didn't just like raise my hand. I just like walked up to the board because they're, uh, what they were presenting was that they were going to make the park much smaller and build a bunch of parking spaces around it. And I was like, this is so unsafe. You're going to make the park smaller where kids play and put more cars around it. And I was like looking at all the bushes that they lined up. I was like, I could just run out of here or I could just <laughs> run out of there or I could just run out of here and I could get hit by a car. Um, and That's again, <laughs> I was like, I was like, right, guys. <laughs> and nobody in the class would back me up. And I burst into tears and I ran out of the room which ended up being the winning move because they did not end up tearing down that park whoa they found another satellite space to build more parking lots so i won you did all by yourself yeah, yeah. like the With the, the power the, the power of children's tears <laughs> <laughs> that's the moral of the story it was manipulative for sure <laughs> it was very manipulative but when i think about i'm like what else was happening behind the scenes of like who were the adults involved in this who also maybe like agreed with me like i, I can't possibly imagine that this was because of me but i'm sure it helped. i'm sure you had an impact <laughs> and like there's a lot of credit due to you for walking up to the architects and being like you are not considering my safety i am I am a child. I am a third grader. This is what third graders do. I'll hide in the bushes and get hit by a car. You have not thought this through. That's incredible. Yeah. I did not have any friends. <laughs> <laughs> Middle school or elementary school, whenever that was, that was a lonely time. But I had my ideas and my convictions and, and look at you now. They kept me company. <laughs> I didn't need anyone else. And this is where I put it. Sponsored ad. If I had one. Sorry, lost the happy, but the happy's back. In college, you spent some time in Spain um, working with the Council on International Education Exchange. Would you uh, tell us more about uh, get a copy of what my you resume? did there and what it was like? <laughs> I did research for <laughs> research. 
This is a serious podcast. We do research. <laughs> I put your name into Google. We read like 25 deep. articles. Ah. You should see the Google Doc. Yeah. There's a lot. Yes. I worked for a company in Spain for a few months. Um, I was very lucky. I got to study abroad there. And uh, it was only like a four-month program. But I was like, I want to stay longer. But I could not stay longer without a job. Um, so I got a job for the international educational exchange, uh, which is basically just the study abroad program and office. Uh, and I worked with like, it was my first time, I think also working in an office and I'm definitely like ways, I think spacier than office work. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, but especially when I, I would think I was like 20 years old when I was doing this, but it was, I mean, it also felt like the first time I was truly living on my own because I was getting my own apartment and I was, you know, paying my bills and I was like learning what a budget is like when you have a job and you have to like live within these constraints. Um, but that was a really, that was a really incredible experience to get to be in Europe in another place in the world at the age that I was getting a sense of how other people live and how people view the world and how they view work and life and family. And, um, it is really different in Spain. They have a a much, a very different attitude towards life than we do here. In what ways? Um, their whole motto is like, they work to live. They don't live to work. Right. And that's kind of like the succinct thing that they like to say a lot is that whatever job you have is just so that you can enjoy yourself later. It's not this thing that's supposed to like follow you around and, um, you know, slowly destroy you. Yeah. Your, your career doesn't become your entire life. Exactly. Right? It doesn't become your personality. It doesn't become your identity. It doesn't take over everything. It is just this thing you do so that. You can like live and enjoy yourself when you're not there. Sounds ideal. Yeah. yeah. Especially when you couple that with um, extended paid vacation time <laughs> in summer and you also have uh, free universities and you also have um, access to free healthcare. Uh, that is uh, a recipe for some sort of maybe mental success of not feeling those pressures. Um, but at the time I was there also, they were, Spain was in a state of um, kind of chaos because I think their like youth unemployment rate was something like 30%. Youth defined by like roughly what ages? Uh, 18 to like 30. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's really high. Um, really, really high. I, I think the problem that they had was basically like people were living too long <laughs> and working too long. Yeah. And like, it's just the economy wasn't like opening up. I, right. I don't know. I'm not an economist, so I don't know that I actually understood like what was going on oh but I was also there while Bush was president so I lived in Europe while Bush was still president whoa um and Obama was running for president so like I got this was a, a very interesting time to be an American abroad because um we were not very popular it was I knew through studying political science that like so much of what the United States 
has been historically and continues to be is this imperialist um, nation uh, who is building a global empire, really. Um, so I knew that there were things that I was like, oh, I don't like learning that. Oh, my God. I'm not sure how that makes me feel about the mythology I've been told about my country. And then going to another country and they're like, why do you guys do this? <laughs> huh? And you're like, literally, I don't know. I'm like, I just <laughs> found out last year. <laughs> I've been lied to my whole life. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, like, what is going on? But I would get asked all the time. As soon as someone would find out I was American um, off the bat. What do you think of Bush? And I'd be like, don't like him. And then they'd be like, do you own a gun? <laughs> like, no, I don't own a gun. Three would be uh, Obama or Hillary. Because Hillary was also running back then right, too. And I was right. like, oh, I like Obama. They're like, yeah, I like Obama. They were like, I don't like the Clintons. And I was like, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, I also don't like the Clintons. Um, and then they'd be like, you look like Amy Winehouse. <laughs> And that would be like, and you were like, I'm never leaving. (laughs) So yeah, that's how I spent my my the year of being 20. It was very, uh, it was very, very fortunate to get to have those experiences. And um, again, like the work I was doing was definitely not the most interesting thing. I was just like working with host families, and uh, that's actually this is a little fun fact. Uh, most of the host families, like they're people who are paid to take in American exchange students. Like the whole the whole system of how Americans do study abroad is really fucking stupid, in my opinion, that like you will take someone who is between the ages of like 18 to 23. And after not living in a home with their parents, you go study abroad and you put them like a child into someone else's home whose responsibility it becomes to cook and clean for them like I don't think it is wise to take people who are start should be learning how to live on their own and put them back in an environment where somebody is taking care of their basic needs yeah right exactly um it's a, a strange way that uh that they do it and like the Europeans they had a program called Erasmus where um any one in the European Union could go study for free in another country of their choosing, but they are responsible for finding an apartment and paying their bills. And, sure. th- and like they get like these stipends and things like that. But the American system Sounds is great. just more, it's, it's more capitalist that you like are finding these people who pay for you and all this stuff. But that was when I learned. So I was, I was working with these host families to like connect them with, with people who were coming and I would like answer the phone and talk to these like 90 year old Spanish ladies and um you know communicate with them and their questions and stuff like that uh, but i learned that a lot of old women in spain are named immaculada concepcion which means immaculate, immaculate conception, conception. <laughs> that is their name it's, that's just beautiful <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> makes you wonder a lot about their parents yeah that they were like uh what should we call her like well um we didn't have sex so yeah <laughs> so like what's the most ca- most catholic name we can choose that's not actually a name <laughs> yeah <Really>? exactly wow. <laughs> just a concept more <laughs> um wow what else did you google <laughs> <laughs> well you've talked about uh running for council one day is that 
the only political office you're considering or are there others and what would you hope to achieve? I don't know. I don't know anymore. Yeah. I, I feel like that is like a, uh, when I was first in school and, um, learning about all the ways in which our society functions and our government functions and the way that America has also like posited itself as this, um, like the global police, my initial reaction to the things that I thought were wrong were I should get involved in politics because in this weird way, I was like, well, if like I'm of this age and I feel this way, then there's probably other people that do. And if like people like us come to power, then maybe we have an opportunity to change it. Um, but just so many things happened, I think in my early twenties that like really put me off of any sort of like government path. And like now I'm happy I haven't gone down that path for the last like nine years because I can't imagine how much that could have like mentally deteriorated me, especially now. Cause I think when I, when you're, when you're 20, you have that kind of idealism as, oh, I don't, none, none of this makes sense to me. So we should change it. And it's the same thing as like me as a third grader in my classroom being like, right guys, this doesn't make sense. Right. Right. Yeah. And then again, you find out a lot of people around you really just don't care. They're completely fine to just continue on in the same way that things have always been without reimagining things. Um, and also understanding the sheer amounts of, of power and, and wealth that are influencing these things to continue. So when I think about getting involved in things, I really can only imagine it on a very like local level. Um, but I don't know, like, you know, my, my recent fantasy is like homesteading and, um, like living off the grid, like the very opposite of, <laughs> yeah, of, of getting involved. You're right. Because yeah. things don't feel optimistic whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I feel like there is to a certain extent, like in order to want to like kind of infiltrate the system to make it better you have to believe in the system first and foremost and its ability to be good or do good with the right people in charge and I feel like a lot of things happening now is a lot of people thinking like well maybe none of this is actually designed to do good and and maybe the right people being in charge is is not actually going to do very much when the whole system itself is is the problem I can see how that could be very discouraging. We've never seen the amount of people who... I, something that I do take, I guess, with that, that grain of salt of, of optimism is that there are people who are running up against um, establishment like Democrats and they're beating them mm-hmm. because their messages are resonating much more so with people. Like, like I learned about Bernie Sanders when I was like 18 years old. I learned about Elizabeth Warren when I was 18 years old and hearing those people, I was like, why aren't there not more people who are saying stuff like this right. in these positions of power? So I can only imagine how they feel, you know, spending an entire career talking about these things, but not having that kind of like collective power. 
like it, it can you can't just have a handful of people who believe these things you need to like slowly overtake an entire political party to change its platform and like where it's going and then when you think about like you know shadow governments and um <laughs> corporations and all that influence all of the dark yeah money. yeah exactly it's just that's when it really starts to feel like oh well that this is the system so right how do you change something but it's like it doesn't matter like how far up in government i get if like jeff bezos is still gonna have enough money to like buy the world and do whatever he wants and like you know people like that having and and realizing that like money is more like money causes more power than like actual quote-unquote power yeah or, like uh that's what's so concerning to me is that i think this current system that we have acquiesces and is willing to do so much for people who already have so much right like, why do you want to lower the taxes for people who have everything like there's no i just i don't understand this uh, i don't know like i'm gonna get a loss for, for words when i when i think about those systems where i'm like do you have enough it yeah <laughs> Yeah. You'll be fine. It's designed to reward the people who already have more than they could ever possibly need while punishing the people who don't have enough for not having enough. It's like a weird hoarding culture. Yeah. And I think especially that's very capitalist and like very like lifestyles of the rich and the famous kind of Definitely. kind of thing where like you can't live in five houses at once. No. You can't right. drive six cars at once. Right. You can't spend billions of dollars in a lifetime. You know, but we prop up and uh, idolize people who have created that kind of world for themselves where they do have six homes and 18 cars. And right. And it's like there's a level of discouragement of like, oh, well, those people exist, which is like bad in and of itself. But then you have like people like working class people in like false class solidarity with billionaires and be like, no, wait a minute. Like. Jeff Bezos, he made a whole company, so like he he deserves that his two hundred billion dollars. It's like, what is the point of defending that? Like, he's not going to be like, thank you so much for defending me. Here's you know, he's a never going to know your take because he's so isolated from you with all of his wealth, right? And like you know, a lot of people I think not understanding that like we are all so much closer to just having nothing than we are to having as much as the, as the richest people in the world have. Yeah, and like. As They're, someone who's been living on my savings for the past, like, six months. Yeah. Yeah, you just see this number go down every day. Yeah. And it's like, what is the point of even, like, defending that? Like, what good does that do? And that's, like, a, another whole level of discouragement of, like, seeing, you know, not only those people who have that power, but seeing people be like, yeah, this is fine, right? And you're I like, think people no. like to believe that that can happen for them too, which is why they don't want to demonize it. Right. Or not, I think demonize is the wrong word because it's not a demonization. It's a critique. That's all it is. It's saying, hey, does this person who's on the very top who has all this, do they need all of that? And how are they making that money? Because if they're making it off of this exploitation of labor, shouldn't that money be... You know, you guys are the ones who came up with trickle-down economics. Like, shouldn't this be trickling down? <laughs> right. But I think it's weird because, like, I grew up in, in Connecticut in, like, a really affluent suburb 
where a lot of people that I see, like who I grew up with, um, they they actually are, I would say like maybe more radical, but like you have that, that generation of parents who was like, was like, oh, we shouldn't, you know, someone's not just bad because they make money. Yeah. And it's not their fault. They're so wealthy. Yeah, like. exactly. <laughs> They're like, oh, like, well, why should they? But like a lot of these people, I'm like, we're not talking about you who makes like a six figure, like a hundred thousand dollars a year. We're not talking about your dad who fucking, you know, made 90 grand last year. We're talking right. about people who, who made what, like $40 billion in a six month period of a pandemic. Exactly. Yeah. You know, while, while there we're not record unemployment yeah. and like, and I think that that's what gets twisted. Cause like people I know who, who have done very well are like, Oh, but, but not, no, you're, you did what you did and you did like work hard and like whatever, but you know, we're not talking about you. Yeah. You are not a person with a six figure salary yeah. in the same boat whatsoever as like. It's like having a billion dollar mentality without actually having a billion dollars. <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like, I'm not, I'm not attacking you. Like, this is not like your $100,000 is not literally anything compared to what these other people have. So like, why, why are you feeling attacked by this? Why do you feel the need to be defensive? I think the billion dollar mentality like that very <laughs> succinctly captures what's going on. TM, 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 TM. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> so no, I don't know if I will ever work in government. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Way to bring it back. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a fantasy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It seems exhausting. It's okay because you have so many other ambitions. <laughs> yeah. That one. Exactly. So like, you you kind of seem to be a person who has boundless ambition a little bit, at least from the outside. Um, and I know like one of the things that you kind of wanted to do was like direct a music video. Um, you directed the Drunk 2 video. Um, would you talk a little bit about that experience and and getting to do something with your music that was outside of what you're kind of used to? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think there's always a, there's a very clear like marriage in my mind between music and a visual to it. I, I think that's very obvious from anyone who like watches movies is that there's a soundtrack to it. You know, that there, these, there, these two different artistic worlds who they exist together. So on every album we've ever made, I've like written treatments for songs that I'm like, oh, this would be a really cool music video idea. But um, I've never, music videos are expensive to make. Totally. Um, even on like a very limited budget, it's just, it's hard to like, I think, mobilize the resources to get something like that done. Um, so going into this album, um, having the support of Epitaph, who were like, oh, you want to make a music video? Cool oh, you want to direct it? Awesome. They're like, just send us a treatment and we'll figure out a budget and all that. And so for the first time in my life, I was like, had ideas and wasn't being told, no, you can't do that because you haven't done it before. And you probably won't do a good job because you haven't done it before. And no, you can't do that because there's no budget to do that. Um, but I will say, 
uh, initially, I mean, I was really afraid to try to direct something myself because I had such a large vision for it. And I'm the kind of person who will feel uh, solely responsible if something doesn't like live up to what's in my mind. Like I'm, I'm my own scapegoat for like that sort of what I perceive as a failure to, to get what I wanted. Um, so I talked to my friend, Michelle Zahner, who does Japanese breakfast and also is a incredible uh, director as well. And was like, will you direct my video? And to Michelle's credit, she was like, no, <laughs> no. She was like, you're going to boss me around. And you're going to be like hovering over my shoulder the whole time. And she was like, you sent me something, you know, exactly what you want. Like you should just direct this. And I was like, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank she's you. the perfect person to, to be able to put you in the place and like gas you up in a way that's like, I'm not taking on this experience that I don't want. You are fully capable and qualified. Just suck it up and do it. Just do it. <laughs> And so, yeah, I, I did and I had to. But I think that's what I love so much about artistic processes is collaboration because I don't, I mean, I do like, of course, believe that there's people who are just so creatively independent and they can do everything themselves and they don't need anyone else's input or like whatever. And like those people exist for sure. But all the things that I have loved so much like artistically in my life and those sorts of like visual experiences that takes a group of people coming together with a very direct vision and like a commitment to seeing this vision through. So anything that you do creatively, you're only going to be as good as the team that you have surrounding you. And if everyone knows what they should be doing, then like you, you can't fail. And you have to listen to your gut too. Like if, oh shit, this, this isn't quite right. Like we need to do it again. And I think that's something I've been unlearning my entire life is just like, is, is very much like that, like woman thing where like you're supposed to shut up and you're supposed to like push down those feelings you have because you need to listen to the men who already know and they already understand and like, you're probably not creative or like whatever. Um, so getting myself to speak up when I'm like, no, I actually don't like this. Yeah. No, I think we could do it better another way. And like trusting that my ideas aren't bad has been a very long process, I think, in my life. Um, so this music video was the first time where I got to experience what it's like to get a team together and I'm like okay well I have a friend who's like so great at costumes so like she's got to do costumes and I have another friend who's like a brilliant DP and I have another friend who does hair and makeup and uh okay now we need extras so like we got to put out a call for extras and I enjoyed how meticulous the process was of like having to do all these things but I couldn't have done it without like Leah Jubara and Adam Kaladny who were uh, the producer and director of photography, respectively, um, because they showed me how to organize these thoughts. Like, I'm not organized in my approach. Like, I have to, like, learn a system of organization, I think. 
I'm like, oh, this and that and this and that and that and this and that and that. And then Leah was like, okay, so that's how we're going to like organize making this and that and that actually come to life. Knowing the, maybe not the weaknesses, but the, not some, the things that are not your strengths. Like it's good to be honest about and knowing that you you need other people sometimes. Yeah. It sounds important. like you were able to take your bag of ideas and toss them on the floor and they were able to like group them into categories to make your idea a cohesive, like complete experience. And then all of you were able to like work together to realize that dream. Yeah. And I think it's, I'm glad that you mentioned the collaborative aspect of it because I think there is just an emphasis in general of like your individual artist who can accomplish everything on their own. And that's like an idealized kind of fake notion that happens a lot, especially in music. Like even thinking about Billie Eilish, for example, it's like a team of making music. It's like Billie and Phineas, her brother, the producer. But like from an image perspective, it's Billie Eilish. And like there isn't as much focus, I I don't think, on the collaboration that's happening between the two of them to create the whole process. And the same with like pop stars and um, other people who make that kind of music. There's like teams of songwriters that go into making one track, but it's all under the guise of like Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah. And that's not to say that those artists aren't doing something incredibly like valuable and contributive especially in the way that like their performances are, but you miss out on the bigger picture of what's happening to get things to come together to create the whole piece. It's interesting to me too, like I think in rock music today, if you think about like the most popular people in rock, the people you're going to be saying are probably more solo artists Mm -hmm. and not so much bands. And I think from, I, I can't tell if that's just like the accident of like the way that these things happen or from like a marketing perspective and like, again, from a capitalist perspective, it is easier to show one person's face and one person's story than it is to explain that this artistic thing that you love was a collaboration between multiple people, all sharing their labor and their love and their energy. I just feel like that story is not as interesting to people than having like this one person that they can just like get wrapped up in. Yeah, either that or it's been decided from a press standpoint that it won't be as interesting to people. And so it's not given the opportunity to be presented that way because it might be a little more complicated. It might be a little more difficult. And like we get that it's a little harder. We've always tried to make coping skills, for example. It's like, no, this is two people. This is two people. This is like there isn't one without the other. And um, that has been complicated in like interviews sometimes where we'll answer questions and it's like, okay, you're saying like when it's typed out, Lauren said this and Rachel said this and it's like always got to be both of us presented together. That's hard as soon as you start adding more members too. Mm -hmm. Like it's it's natural that sometimes like one person is going to come to the front or they're or like in this in the case of a band, like a front person is going to be if they're the voice then they're the voice. Right. And that's it. But I think that's what is so special about the the visual world and like the music video world is that it takes so many people coming together. Like 
like Lauren Cat West, who did the set design for it, like basically transformed Photo Club into this, like this vision that it had of like walking through a tunnel of love and then these lights pop on and all that. So like that was just an idea. And I happened to have a friend who could make that idea real. I just started thinking about that because I wanted to believe in the future a little more. That's ambitious. I think, yeah. Yeah. But I think, I think helpful. (laughs) I was like, I need to believe that there will be a future. So I would want to have some goals of some things. Um, Yeah. I really want to make more music videos. Um, I have so many ideas for them. It's just like a matter of getting the funding to do it. Um, Like a big one would be, I would like to write like a feature length film. Uh, That's something I've been not seriously working on for a long time, but like, you know, I have my first like 20 pages or something like that done, but it's the idea is there. It's just up to me to bring it out. Uh, I'd, I would like to do, I mean, for all this type of collaboration, I would like to have like a solo project as well, more so as a way to learn um, methods of production and being able to record myself and uh, how can I, I I think that for me to become a better collaborator, I need to learn these things and like learn this language so that I can better articulate what the vision is that I have to other people. And the only way I can really think to do that is to force myself to be like, okay, well, you're going to write a song on your own and play all the parts and figure that out. Like doing everything yourself doesn't necessarily always have to be like a selfish thing like I have to do this because I'm the only one who can do it 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 can be a, a way of personal growth saying like I'm going to force myself to do all these things to learn how to do them and to see if I can do them or not and and kind of keep working through it and then all those things that I learn from you know doing this thing myself I can then like you said bring bring into the collaboration and be a better collaborator that way yeah I want, I, if I don't flex that muscle or if I don't learn to create that muscle, I'm going to stay in the same place as a, a creative collaborator to other people. And I have to grow in order to just for my own personal like feeling. And then the last thing is I would really like to learn how to sew and have a, a, like a garden. If I could like learn to that, that kind of, I've been like mentioning homesteading a lot. But, yeah, like, yeah. I do. Like, I want to learn how to sew and make my own clothes, so I'm not kind of more forced to like consume in this way. Yeah, but it's hard. Like, I really, I really like shopping. Uh, it's <laughs> so it's really <laughs> satisfying to to be able to like adjust your clothing though. Like, yeah. I took a yeah. shirt that I've had for years at the beginning of the pandemic and I it was like a button-up shirt and I cropped it and sewed a new hem on it and then I took the rest of the scrap and I made a mask so it could match see that's fucking cool yeah and it's just like because music is such an intangible thing in a lot of ways like it feels very different to be able to take a textile like tactile object and be like oh here is the little literal product of my effort and work and I have it, and it is a thing, and I can do things with it. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a you're all experience. You're manipulating something in your hands, but then you can, you're using your hands to make it, but then you can never touch it. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, that experience of what I imagine 
creating a garment, creating like an outfit for yourself to, to make something and then to hold it and be like, wow, I can put this on my body. And I'm like, I made this for myself and it came from my mind. Mm-hmm. So I, I, that is something I would really, really yeah. like to learn. Yeah. My, um, my mom just gave me a, an old sewing machine that she had. Nice. Uh, cause I also like cut up all my clothes and, and crop them all. Uh, because I can never get anything that fits. And also just like the way they look that way. But like being able to like take something and, and instead of getting so frustrated about like never finding anything exactly the way I want it, being able to take that into your own hands. I, I'm very excited to kind of go down that road. Do you want to talk at all about what your screenplay is about or what the ideas that you have? Yeah. I mean, yes, I do. It is, uh, it was like a coming of age um, that is like very based on my high school experience. Um, cause when I was 15, I was diagnosed with cancer and whenever I've seen any movie at all about like teenage girl with cancer, it's very different than the yeah. experience that I had. Um, and I would love to tell a story that is more complicated and true to what I think those feelings of like isolation and regret and I mean I can't say that like my experience is I I haven't met that many other people who have been like 15 and going through that but um the very few amount of people I have I'm like so did you like like go like wild <laughs> and they're like yeah like I was like trying to cram as many experiences in my life as I like possibly could and a very short amount of time and not like in the way where it's represented on film right now where the the trope is like teenage girl gets cancer she's like oh my god I've never had sex um oh my god I've never been in love and so then like enter boy boy makes her feel like life is beautiful and worth living and boy gives her all those incredible experiences that she needed before she dies and then she dies it's a walk to remember and yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> a walk to remember yeah. it's a fault in our stars yeah it's the movie about the girl who's like in a bubble in her house it's um it, yeah there's like i've been going i've been exploring like that canon of the uh coming of age terminal illness movies right um but so i would like to tell a different perspective on that that, you know, I think I was, the thing I took away the most from that experience is I think for a while it really turned me into a shitty person where I felt like what I was going through was so much more than what anyone around me was going through. And I, for a little bit there, I think I like lost the ability to empathize because I was like, no one understands me. No one understands my pain. And if they don't understand my pain and they don't want to understand it, then like, why should I care about theirs? And it took a while to, you know, go through the process of like being 15 and, and then like really just kind of like becoming emotionally frozen for a long time to be like, it's to like what I said in that clip earlier, where I was like, everyone has something that they struggle with. Everyone has this like pain that comes from these, it comes from these different places. It might not all look the same, but a lot of those emotions are the same. So, you know, why do I feel like entitled to be 
you know, like the high empress of misery. I'm fucking, <laughs> I'm fucking not, you know, I'm just 15 and just experiencing something before a lot of my peers will. Yeah. That's it. And so I, w- I would like to create like a more like complicated character who isn't, you know, like the preacher's daughter who's never done anything wrong in her life. Cause it's like, I was a bad kid. And, you know, I was good too, but I was, you know, the a idea is, yeah, it's not as black and white as that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I think if I could tell the story well, I would be very proud of myself to just finish it because it's been on my mind for a long time. And, uh, you know, what do they always say? It's like you, you, the first story you tell usually has to be your own or something. Maybe. Or, I don't know if that's the same. <laughs> <laughs> you can trademark it. Yeah. I mean, it, like it's easier to like interpret experiences that you've already had than it is to kind of like create something that you don't know about and can try to translate that. Like it makes a lot of sense to just start with your own experiences. Yeah. Eventually you run out of your own. And right. You have to like <laughs> dive into the world of fantasy. Sure. Like right. Like writing a, a, a sci-fi like dystopian or utopian movie too like that would be very interesting to me because I love sci-fi and fantasy and like even now when you're living through it yeah well I mean I think I think that's like what's so weird about now right is that like I think for the last 10 years of my life in a weird way like a lot of these like tech companies were like they were like promising utopia they're like Mm -hmm. y'all we figured it out we found out a way that like we can all live together in peace and but like there's a very thin line between utopia and dystopia because a lot of it, it's like the same tools that get you there. And right. we, we've fallen into the dystopian hole because we kind of have allowed a lot of these um, like a lot of these like tech companies to own and sell all of our information and everything about us. And they're not regulated and they're just spreading mass amounts of disinformation and racism and fear on like a daily basis where it's like bombarding and targeting people. But, so yes, I would like to escape from this reality for like a little bit and maybe just like write something else. A different kind of dystopia. Yeah. Than the current experience. Yeah, if I could, if I could escape this dystopia by writing a different dystopia, that would be <laughs> fun. Yeah. Is that meta? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I've ever really understood meta. <laughs> uh, well, you talk, you mentioned that you've had this idea for your screenplay for a while. And in an interview you did with Lauren Denizio of Warriors, you talked about this idea that you had heard in the past about the muse being and like genius being separate from your body, which was something we talked about on the first season of this show because I had heard it in a TED talk that Elizabeth Gilbert gave. She, is she the Ypres Lovely? She is, but she's, I've come to really appreciate her. The TED talk was great. And so um, I was wondering, like, how much into so the idea is that genius exists outside of the body and it can it visits you like you have to do work and you have to be open and receptive to it and like it can visit you and you can take in its ideas or it can leave um and there is like sort of a finite timeline that it will give you to like actually harness the idea and do the work she talks about in a well in a separately in a book that she had this idea for a specific novel and was going to work at it and going to work at it. And eventually she had kind of put it aside. And then somebody else that she knows wrote exactly that novel. 
they had never spoken about it. There was no like actual communication. It was like as if the idea left her and picked somebody else. Yeah. So I was wondering what like your relationship to this idea is. Like, do you buy into this? How oh, do you? I I buy into it. And I live in constant fear of it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> it's a double edged sword because it it gives you. It doesn't put the pressure on you to be something, but it puts pressure on you to do something. Exactly. Though. Yeah. I think that is, is that not the hardest part of, of all this like experience? Like, I mean, I think that, I think that humans are meant to be creative receptors and we are meant to create much more than we are meant to earn or destroy. You know, we, that's in terms of my understanding of like what the fuck is the point of any of this it is and it's like oh my god I'm gonna sound like such a fucking hippie but it's really just like to like love and create and like experience ways to connect to other people like that's it like I think I really do think it's simple in some ways and so to that point of okay well if I have to create and I'm being visited by these ideas I have to, I, I don't feel like ownership of them. I don't feel like they are coming from my own brain. I really feel like I'm just a host body. Yeah. And these ideas bounce around looking for people to bring them out because the idea has to be realized. The idea has to come out. And if I'm not going to be the host body to do it, then someone else was. Right. And they will be. And like, you have to be willing to accept that like your allotted time with it has passed and you didn't use it and just be ready to take the next idea. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Just because like you, there may be some time goes on between like being visited by these ideas, but yeah, you have to be willing to like let them go. Once you see someone else, you're like, Oh, okay. Well this, you know, it wasn't about me. It wasn't about like my ego and being the one to create it. It was just about this thing had to exist. Mm-hmm. I enjoy the pressure of it, but I definitely, I yeah, I'm afraid because I, like especially that screenplay thing is something I've had for a long time. I've now like talked about it publicly, and someone else could just like hear it and do it. But maybe they'll reach out. Yeah, maybe they'll <laughs> want to collaborate. It's, yeah, like yeah. it's such a personal thing that like I can't imagine that there's like, but it is you know, also somebody else's personal thing. Yeah, but it's someone else's right. personal thing. And, like if someone else does a similar thing, it's it's not going to be the same thing that you would do in in that elizabeth gilbert book big magic she also talks about the difference between fearlessness and bravery and so fearlessness is the total absence of fear but bravery is proceeding despite being afraid which do you see yourself as being i think more brave yeah i know the danger (laughs) (laughs) but do you fear the danger Maybe not, actually. I don't know. I don't want to get hurt, but I'm not afraid of danger. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, I, that's confusing to me, I guess. Like I, like, I understand the question, but I don't understand my reaction to it. Right. Yeah. But you haven't uh, considered it before, maybe. So I feel like I, I see you as taking on new things very fearlessly. Like, it doesn't. When you were directing the video, for example, you seemed on it, like not anxious or hesitant to do it at all. When you talk about doing the screenplay, you seem 
confident about being able to realize that. And that seems to me to be a theme throughout your life, even if you're talking about writing the letter to the editor and trying to save the park and like all of these different experiences. I guess from an outsider perspective, it it would appear that you approach these things without being afraid of them. Um, but I, not in your subconscious, so I don't know if you actually are. I, I mean, when you put it like that, <laughs> yeah, maybe, I am, maybe it is fearlessness. Yeah, I, I don't, I, the only thing I'm really afraid of is not doing the things I want to and not having enough time to do them. That's my only fear. I'm not afraid of like, looking stupid or like what other people will think really sure I'm just afraid of myself and how mean I will be to myself if I don't do them and sometimes maybe I don't I don't stop and think I just like I do I'm like okay well I want to do this so I'm just gonna fucking do it and I don't stop to think about consequences and may this is like a weird maybe it is a social media thing where because I did get to grow up without like the internet in my pocket for most of my life, I don't have anxiety in the same way that I think a lot of other people do because I didn't grow up really thinking too much about what other people were doing. I was only thinking about like my own path. Um, but now it's, it's a constant like you are comparing what you are doing because you're seeing what everyone else is doing all the time. And so I I think maybe some of that fearlessness just comes from, you know, the gift of time as to like when I got to come of age into like my own creativity. So I just, I just, I didn't really know like what other people were doing. I just knew I wanted to do it. Yeah. Well, I think being only or primarily being afraid of, not doing the things you want to do sounds like it's the fear that drives you to do all the things you want to do like there's nothing that sits on top of it that prevents it from happening yeah yeah I I see I see life as like an hourglass I do like I I I think that's the probably my biggest takeaway from like those experiences I had when I was younger was like anything could happen at any time so I may as well just try to do all the things that I think are going to bring me joy in my life while I can. And to me, that means like just creating things and making things and being part of communities with people and, and watching and enjoying the other, the things that other people make too. It's, a, it's so much of just that like beautiful creative energy that like when you find other people who, who want to like, build rather than just consume you're like oh you're my people what what will we build together yeah yeah that's beautiful I love that yeah (laughs) do you um have anything coming up that you've built that you want to talk about before we wrap up well mannequin pussy has our new ep um which is going to be fun and chaotic it's five songs it's the first time we've ever written in the studio that's exciting oh so we wrote three songs in the first two days in the studio and then we like re we revisited two older songs that way we had not recorded before um so hopefully if I can I'm like in the lyric and melody process right now like where I have basic instrumentals and I'm just like writing to them 
And it's, it's strange because this is a time where you feel like you would have so much to say, but it's like hard to find the words. And I'm really like struggling with this idea that like, don't have anything nice you're not supposed to say anything at all but i'm like that's what that's music's not true for. yeah like, mu- like yeah. music is who does that protect saying yeah. all the things that like you're not supposed right. to say <laughs> and it's like when you have you know option paralysis of like if you feel like you can there, there's too many things that you have to say it's like well where do i start what do i do it's it, i feel like it's a lot easier to create when you don't have that many options when you're like more laser focused on one or two specific things yeah so hopefully I get some like, you know, wind in my sails and then just like, bop, 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 like write it out and I can find, yeah, I think that's the strangest thing sometimes is like, especially if you're writing from an emotional place, like if if you're doing like storytelling music, that's a little bit easier because you, sometimes you are, you are telling a story and like the words to tell a story are readily available and they're there, but expressing feelings putting like uh, something that you feel like deep in your chest or in your gut or like just pain like well how do I how do I say that how do I articulate pain and still in a melodic structure yeah (laughs) or or whatever it is yeah feelings don't have a narrative structure yeah but I don't know maybe for one of these tracks you just create a melody and scream the whole melody. No words, just anguish. There's definitely going to be screaming on this next one. I, for a long time, you've probably heard me in the band where it's like, I'm done with screaming. I'm just going to sing. I'm going to take singing lessons and I'm done. And then like a global pandemic happened and I'm like, <laughs> like fucking ready all to the rip. Oh my God. I really thought I was like, I thought it was done. Yeah. Was like, no. Well, now that you're not screaming every to. night, you need yeah. to. Yeah. That was interesting. When I saw Will again, mm-hmm. he was like, your voice sounds so different. He was like, really? He was like, I was like, what? He was like, he's like, yeah, like. The way you sound in my mind is like, you know, you're like kind of like raspy and like, oh, he's like, but you have so much like warmth now in your voice. And I was like, dude, it's because I haven't played a show in six months. Yeah. Well, either, (laughs) I'm sure it's a combination of that and him being so used to the way that you sound when he's mixing the songs. Oh, yeah, that's true. That like he has all of that, like almost um, muscle memory of, of the way your scream sounds too. Well, both maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm ready to like erase it. That's fine. I'm, I, I, my vocal cords got a lot of rest, so yeah, it's time yeah. to scream. And then hopefully, you know, do does any of us have an idea as to like when we're going to be communally screaming again? I don't. I'll scream right now if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time yeah. to come yeah. on our podcast. Thank you for doing these deep dives of research. I want to look at your notes. I'll show you. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll pull it up. Yeah. 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 <laughs> All right. Well, keep talking. Less rocking. Hello, and welcome to the tag yourself portion of the evening. Uh, t- today, 
We are going to I be- like how you just assumed whoever was listening to this was listening to it in the evening. It's not well, even like, as if we are recording it in the evening. Well, I meant just more so like the evening of the podcast. You know, this is like the latter half, you mm. know, kind of winding down. Yeah, it's like supper time in the podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah. So like in podcast universe, I feel like this we're kind of in the evening. Okay. Um carry on. That was more more my thought. Uh I'll allow it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh <laughs> so we have to tag ourselves. Uh, and this week, we are going to tag ourselves as another dynamic musical duo. Uh, Misters Hall and Oates. <laughs> when you say misters, it sounds like they're married. And I really love that for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's like now presenting Misters Hall and Oates. Yeah. Um, the, the fun thing about this tag yourself that we have chosen is that we haven't the slightest clue on how to decide who is who. No, but we're going to figure it out like we always do. There is no BuzzFeed quiz for if you are Hall or Oates. Maybe there is. I no, don't, I, I looked. Searched. Have you looked? Okay. Yeah, of course I looked. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like there's not enough options. I feel like for a BuzzFeed quiz, you have to have like... More than two options. More than two options. They don't want to do like a one or the other. It's boring. Um, But... I don't know. Okay, first impressions. Uh... Hollow Notes has some great tunes. Um, oh, you're oh, you mean about- to tie yourself? <laughs> okay, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, my first impression was that you are Hall and I am Oates. Why? Um, because Hall uh does most of the like lead singing, and my thought was like, you have written or at least started most of our songs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in in a similar way to like, like Hollow Notes are a duo, right? Like they are, they are the band. The duo is the band, right? But like, in certain instances, you could say that like Hall is kind of the front person, and I feel like in more instances, you feel like the front person, and in some instances, I do too. But um, I don't know. In my head, that felt well. Yeah, correct. even the way that you just said it, you said I do too. Not even like I do. Period. Instead. Well, yeah. It's like, like, I also feel like the front person, but not like, like, you are the front person and then I also am in addition to. Right. Rather than we both instead are the, of. Well, yeah, maybe instead is not the right word. No, I'm, I'm like, saying, uh, I think the way that you phrase it, it makes it seem like there are times when I am or there are times when we both are, which is kind of like the point you're making about Hall and Oates. Mm-hmm. Is that, Hall is, but sometimes Oates is also. No, and sometimes, yeah. But I also don't know enough about Hall and Oates to say if Oates ever is too. Like, what's what's oh, the, I don't what's know. the like I like I want to hear like Oates. Like, what has Oates done? Oh, like, let's find out. Outside of like, um, just like mostly playing guitar and doing backing vocals in Hall and Oates. Uh, keyboards. <laughs> okay, there you go. Whereas Hall does vocal. This is just from the Wikipedia, everybody. Right. Vocals, guitars, keyboards, mandolin, and vibraphone. Love that. Yeah, I love that for Hall. Yeah. But I think, too, I think the distinction is important of, like, like quote-unquote front person can just mean, like, the person in the front. And it doesn't necessarily have to mean the person in charge or, like... Because they are still a duo. Like, it is hollow notes. Oh, yeah. And and I think that is important. Um, I thought we were just talking about singing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, I mean, just like in terms of like, you know, singing lead vocals versus like backing vocals or like yeah. something like that. Um, but I don't know. What are your takes? Well, not many. Because okay. I, <laughs> I truly don't know enough about Hollow Notes, which is why I'm still on the Wikipedia page. Okay. Um, you found anything interesting? John William Oates and I have the same birthday. Wow. April 7th. Wow. Years different. Sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, apparently when John Hall, or John Hall, <laughs> uh, uh, when Hall and Oates met, they were in their own bands, Hall with the Temptones and Oat with the Masters. Mm. I do feel like I am more inclined to name a band the Masters than you are. I think that is true. I am not inclined at all to name a band the Temptones. No. I might name a band the Temptones. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't exactly name a band the Masters, but I just, that would more, it's a vibe. More likely to happen from me than from you. Yeah. Uh, also, Oates plays guitar, and you also play guitar. That's true. I do play guitar. Um, I I learned that their first album is called Whole Oats, like O A T S, which is <laughs> hilarious. And again, something that I would be like, let's make a joke off my last name for our first record. In a way that you wouldn't like draw attention. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly like dispenser. Uh, in a way that you would not draw attention to yourself. I agree with that. Um, um, whole oats is pretty good. Whole oats is hilarious. <laughs> wow. Um, I don't know. I think we just got to kind of, got to kind of feel it out. Got to kind of feel it out. I'm well, looking at pictures now. Okay. Uh, not. They both have great like '80s hair. They have great '80s hair. Yeah. Uh, Oates has this really nice mustache, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm Do you not vibe a, with that? I'm not a mustache guy, but I think he's pulling it very well. <laughs> um, you just like the vibe the mustache is giving off. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, here, I I feel like. I'm more Oates and you're more Hall, but I would like you to take a look okay. at these photos and get and see the vibe and who you vibe with in these in these photographs. Look at this oh photograph every time I do. Well, okay, so I I will just say that this this photo at the top, right, blue background, yeah, got the good mustache. Um, we do have a lot of pictures of me like over your shoulder. That's true. In a similar in a similar way, it's true. Um, which is a is a photo aesthetic that I appreciate. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Even even just in that like top you know, top photo, I feel like maybe I do have more of the of the hall vibe, and you have more of the Oates vibe. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. We're not allowed to just call it a draw, right? That's not in the spirit of the thing. No, we have to make a decision. Okay. It's just <sighs> like, like I. Well, and it's interesting that you're looking at the top one and you're saying that you have more of a, a hall vibe, but also pointing out how Oates is over the shoulder. Yeah. And that's usually your move. But, but it's like the look on the, the face, the look on the face. Yeah. Is like, I think Oates is trying to give more personality. Yeah. He's ser- definitely serving looks. Like, again, over the shoulder. Mm-hmm. But this time, that's Paul is over the shoulder. That's true. Oates. <clears throat> and like, this too, like, 
I am more likely to take that oat stance. <laughs> and you are more like we should recreate this photograph. Yeah, we should. Um, I love this photograph. We should also probably not talk so much about photographs for an audio podcast. I know. I know. We <laughs> but could, they're good. We can put together our, our favorite collection <laughs> and post it on the IG. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but, so what's our IG handle? More Talk Less Rock? More Talk Less Rock, yes. Great. Uh, on Twitter, it's MTLR Podcast. Yes. Um, yeah, so hopefully uh, by the time this goes up, we will have a great... Wow. Wow. That's the one. We wow. that one. Look at that goatee. Whoa. All right, yeah, maybe you are Oates and I am Hall. Yeah, I think we did it. I stand corrected. It's okay. First impressions aren't always correct. That's, that's very true. Um, this is why we talk it out, you know? <laughs> More talk. More talk. <laughs> You know what? For my rock on this week, I would like to rock on salads. Yeah? Because there's one sitting right in front of me. And sometimes, this is how I feel about a salad. It's never what you want, but it is oftentimes what you need. Mm. And I don't know that I've ever eaten a salad and felt bad afterwards. Like emotionally? Physically? uh, D, all of the above. Uh, I only had two options. (laughs) See all of the above. Uh, I don't know. Maybe more so physically. Like I don't think I've ever had an averse physical reaction to a salad. Yeah, I have had some spiritually lacking salads. Yeah, um, a salad won't cure your depression, but it, no. it will not slow your body down. Yes, and for that, I have a lot of respect. <laughs> So I'd like to rock on salads. Underrated. Sick. Sick, 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 sick. Uh, I would like to rock on the TV show Nurse Jackie. Uh, your boy Edie Falco? Yeah, my boy Edie Falco! <laughs> my mother, Edie Falco. <laughs> if anybody has seen my mother, she looks like Edie Falco as Carmela Soprano. She does. She tells me that I'm wrong, but I am right. Uh, I swear I'm right. <laughs> Swear I knew it all along. (laughs) Yes. My mother, who also told me last night that she can't argue with me anymore because I'm too smart for her. So (laughs) just know that I am right. Um, But I just started watching Nurse Jackie about a week ago Mm -hmm. to get my Edie Falco fix because I'm also mid-Sopranos rewatch. But uh, it's just just very good. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's got, I watched House a lot growing up. So it's got some house vibes yeah. with less emphasis on the actual diagnostics and more. It's like mm-hmm. if Scrubs in house had a mm-hmm. baby with, I guess, each other. But <laughs> <laughs> less less toxic masculinity than house, yes. I think, too. And Scrubs. Yeah. just like, like I feel like having a female lead really does a lot for that show. Yes. In a way where, like, if that was a male in Edie Falco's place, it would not be nearly the same show. Yeah, she's just like a badass nurse who plays by her own rules and mm-hmm. does what's right by herself and other people for the most part, mm-hmm. but also has like her own problems mm-hmm. and There's a lot of pills. A lot of pills. A lot of drugs. Lies about that's it. Not a, that's not a spoiler because you find out in the first five minutes of the show. Yeah, no, that is just kind of like the premise of the show is that like, like she's 
taking a lot of pills, a lot yeah, of pain pills. Like she's a nurse who is addicted to drugs. Yeah. Um, but it's it's very good so far. I'm super into it mm-hmm. and I'm trying to take my time with it. I streaming culture has made me really into like speed watching shows, mm-hmm. as I'm sure a lot of people can relate. But I feel like I don't take enough time to process what's happening and then everything kind of blurs together. So I'm trying to do no more than two episodes a day. I think that's a good amount. Yeah. Because it's like not as slow as like, like I'm not, I don't know that I'm ever trying to watch like a a television show once a week. Mm -hmm. I think maybe like once a, once a day, once every couple days at like the minimum. Sure. And then like, if I'm really trying to go for it, just like binge it. But I think two a day is a good amount. Yeah. I've got, since quarantine, I have like a weekly date with a friend to watch a show once a week, but we usually watch like two episodes. Mm-hmm. And so that has been an interesting like reversion into the past way of technology where you could only watch something once a week. Cause mm-hmm. It's like a, an activity to do together. So you can't just speed ahead because you get impatient or bored or mm-hmm. and that has been cool. It's like actually been really nice. Yeah. We watched Killing Eve that way. And I hear that's good. Also fucking rock on Killing Eve. And Jody Comer, gay. so hot. Sandra O, oh, so hot. Oh my God. Yeah. I just would like them to kiss, please. I haven't seen Do season three. I haven't seen season three, so no spoilers if they ever kiss. Oh, but. I don't really know anything about that show except for a uh, lot of the advertising makes it seem very gay. Yeah, and I just want confirmation gay. that it is it's, very gay. There's so much sexual tension between them that yeah. I like. Cannot stand Or at it. least maybe not like explicitly. It's explicitly gay. Okay. All right. Great. Like, like <laughs> Jodie Comer is explicitly at least bi. What is what gay. is the premise? Like is she uh, literally just trying to okay. kill her? So Jodie Comer is a trained assassin. Her character's name is Villanelle. Love that. And she works for a group of unknown undesirables called the Twelve. And Sandra O's character, Eve Polastri, works for the British intelligence agency or something um and is trying to find Villanelle and uh Villanelle develops a huge crush on Eve and Mm -hmm. just like becomes obsessed with Eve but Eve also becomes obsessed with Villanelle and it's very good Mm -hmm. uh so rock on killing Eve too I got to this week (laughs) yeah that's fine yeah they're just both good shows watch shows yeah what else do you have to do? Yeah, that's why, you know, there's so much time yeah. to watch shows. Watch good shows with women in them, specifically. Yeah, <laughs> shows that pass the Bechtel test, perhaps? Perhaps, yes. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode of More Talk, Less Rock. We do all of the things to make the show because there's so much time to do things. Mm-hmm. And we really like making the show. So thank you for taking the time to listen to it. And now we're doing it in the same room. For the first time since February? January? January. Yeah, January is the last time we... Wow. Wow. So good to see you. You too. Wow. Um, you could rate or like or subscribe or all of the things to the show wherever you listen to the show. So Just that do it all. More people will listen to it. That would be really great. We would appreciate that a lot. I'm Lauren. And I'm Rachel. And, and we're, we're just happy to be here. here.
He's the one who like rips out their hair and like smells it and stuff. You know what I'm talking about? I've never seen Charlie's Angels. What? I know. Don't hate me. Don't hurt me. I have not seen Charlie's Angels in a very long time. I want to see the old one and then also (laughs) the new one. So disappointed. No, I think I'm mostly actually just more impressed that like the younger queer generation could have had an awakening without that movie. Uh, Why do you think I didn't have an awakening till college? (laughs) (laughs) I was dead asleep. (laughs) I think maybe if you had watched Charlie's Angels earlier, yeah, I think so. There were like signs. Like I really, really liked Kira Knightley and couldn't figure out why. But wasn't enough. You need to watch Charlie's Angels then. It is such a good movie. It is so much fun. 